The views and opinions expressed on Smack My Pitch Up are those of the panelists and not those of GUI Network, their sponsors, or any of the properties mentioned. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast is rated R for violence, language, and nudity. Well, it's a podcast, so you won't see the nudity. I just do it to make the guest uncomfortable. In a world gone mad with unnecessary reboots, remakes, and sequels, only one podcast has the guts to make even worse. This is Smack My Pitch Up. Hello, geeks, and welcome to another wonderful science fiction heavy episode of Smack My Pitch Up, the podcast that reboots, remakes, reimagines, sequels, sidequels, and adapts some of your favorite and least favorite properties from film, television, books, comics, and what have you. And this is a episode that is adapting, well, book, movie, uh, TV series, uh, animated, uh, all are from the original novel that this was based on. Uh, so there's a lot of different ugly heads on this Hydra of of a uh, property here. And I'm kind of interested to oh, see... Oh, Hydra Beast. Yeah, that's a perfect. That is perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I'm kind of interested to see what we draw from on this episode, um, whether it be the original source material or specifically the, the well-loved cult classic film that the, it the, was... The horribly loved. <laughs> horribly loved. That was very... Incredibly bad. <laughs> very loosely based on the source material. Uh, we're talking about Starship Troopers, the Paul yeah. Verhoeven film uh, that is one of the few times in cinema that they expect you to root for the fascists. Yeah. So uh, that's, that's <laughs> a a hard uh, hard choice to make there, Paul Verhoeven. Right. But he was the king of making some pretty interesting decisions in the '80s and early '90s with his films. I agreed with every decision he made with this movie. I do too. <laughs> I think. This film, uh, uh, with me tonight, first off, before we get into the actual conversation about the, the film and the, the novel, uh, we've got Jack, my dungeon master, my uh, hey, friend, hey. regular contributor to the GUI network. Uh, you were on last time for the uh, Universal Monsters episode during the Halloween yep. season. So yeah, That was a lot of fun. Oh, absolutely. I, I love anything that'll scare pe- the pants off people. No shit. And uh, what was definitely scary is uh, uh, Casper Van Dien's acting uh, in uh, in this. Uh... Well, that's the fun part. Is like you got Casper Van Dien's just like just completely stoic wooden acting going on in the first one, and then you've got his acting in the sequels. Yes, <laughs> which is somehow just incredibly worse. Yeah. <laughs> well, there was something about kind of the the satirical nature of the original that kind of fit yeah. the wooden act wooden acting that like ridiculous nature of it of his mm-hmm. inability to act actually fit the kind of tone of the movie a little bit so it kind of oh, worked yeah. yeah uh paul verhoven saying he was lifting entire shots from uh triumph of the will yep like being as obvious as he fucking can be with like oh look the officers are all wearing ss uniforms like you couldn't be more right. on the nose about it so yeah considering that the you know aryan poster boy on the cover of the of the movie who's, you know, Johnny Rico uh, in the original book is like 
probably Filipino. <laughs> right. Um, uh, so yeah, he's just, just absolutely ridiculous. And, you know, everybody's turning in just sort of like the most cheesy, hackney, wooden performances of all of their careers. I think the only one who came out of there unscathed was Michael Ironside. Because he's Michael fucking Ironside. Yeah, like like he's always that character. He's always that character. And also, th- there's there's char- there's actors in that movie that are not... That are known for being bad actors. you got Denise Richards, who has one look. Yeah, uh, She's yeah. got that one smile she does. Like that, that look that says... I'm being nice and prim and proper out in the uh, in the world right now, but I'm giving you this one specific look that says I'm going to rock your world later. Yeah, when nobody else is watching. Sure, that's that's the kind of look that that she has just perfect nailed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jake Busey, who is a delight. Horse teeth McGillicuddy. Yes. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, oh, you got Neil Patrick Harris in here, who is just just bizarre. I and, think he was trying to separate himself from Doogie Howser as much as possible. I mean, it was a good transition from him in a lab coat that was too big to that trench coat that he was wearing that was just clearly too big, too just big for way him. Way too huge. Yeah. But he did a great job. Uh, he he was one of the few actors in this movie that actually knew how to act to any degree. <laughs> yeah. Not that it was really helpful who he was acting against, so it's not it's not the top-notch acting that you've gotten from him in other uh, film yeah, and TV shows projects. Yeah. Yeah. But I uh, did want to kind of get into a couple of the things that are different between the book and the movie. Uh, before Very we... important for, for pretty much all the versions I'm going to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I have to admit that I have not read the book. Uh, okay. And I know I need to get on that. It's uh, Robert Heinlein uh, that did yep. uh, stranger in a strange land. So well known for uh, several different stories and this being oh, one yeah. of them. And the big, Differences are a lot of the uh, choices made with the different characters uh, that Johnny Rico and Carmen don't actually have any kind of like longstanding relationship in the book. They yeah. they have a romantic kind of intertwinement, but there's no girlfriend, boyfriend business. Um, the other love interest dude, just it, that's not a thing in the book. Because there, the other love interest is actually a dude in the book. Is a dude in the book? Dizzy Flores in the in the movie. Oh right, yep. Yeah, in the book, Dizzy Flores is a guy. Yep, and also I think yeah doesn't doesn't have any kind of romantic intertwine. That's a totally different character by name only. Is they are they connected? Exactly. Um, you still have like the characters are all there. It's just they're not their their roles are slightly tweaked and merged and shifted around. Yeah, like Michael Ironstein's character, he's a combination of both the teacher and the roughnecks leader. Uh, yeah. he it was not both the teacher was the one that was missing a limb was former yeah. military service, but no longer was able to serve then mm-hmm. leader of the roughnecks where he, his name actually comes from, I believe is, uh, yeah. was a totally different character separate. Didn't yeah, have they were pre- two separate characters and they just combined them into one. I, I'm not sure where that decision came from, but it was, uh, it worked for the movie because the movie had a much more accelerated timeline. Whereas the book is very loose on having an actual story because the book is more like vignettes of Johnny Rico's life for the express purpose of Heinlein going off for pages and pages and pages of his rhetoric about why this militarized society in space works, whereas, you know, every other system of government is terrible. Yep. So it's, yeah. It is weird that this was written in, I think, 1959. 
58. And uh, it is definitely kind of a reaction to the Cold War and everything going on with the U.S. and Russia. Yep. I mean, that's that's pretty blatant. Yeah, absolutely. The, the the book really non-satirically is suggesting that like a strong military force is the only way to prevent your version of of uh, government uh, from mm-hmm. going by the wayside in short order. So yep. it's actually advocating um, from, from the American side, but advocating for a strong military industrial complex. Which I mean, it was it was it written straight into the text that the story goes that this government came about because the veterans rose up in a violent revolution and took out all the other governments on the planet and said, you're not allowed to be citizens unless you've already served. That is literally how it goes in the book. So it's like, it's, it's actually um, uh, recommending a military junta takeover of the world government. Right. And so absolutely wild looking at that source material and then the beautiful choices that Verhoeven made on kind Mm -hmm. of not just, going with that, but like going with it so hard that he made a satire out of it. It yeah. was perfect. And just yeah. leaning and in so hard. Yeah. Verhoeven was great at the, uh, about this because he took, he looked at Heinlein's uh, point of view of Heinlein was an American uh, military retiree uh, who was writing science fiction, uh, who went through world war two, who, who lived through parts of uh, the beginning of the cold war. And he had a very American mindset when he wrote the book. Verhoeven grew up in Nazi-occupied, I believe, <laughs> right. Denmark or Sweden. It doesn't matter. Like he was, he grew up being propagandized by the actual Nazis. So he's like, "This is the same thing." Yeah. Like the story doesn't matter. The characters don't matter. This is why there was no actual romance between Johnny and Carmen in the book because it would only get in the way of Heinlein, like proselytizing about like his version of fascism being the best idea for humanity. Sure. And Which... Verhoeven wanted to have more of a tongue in cheek approach to it where he was mm-hmm. making fun of that kind of viewpoint of, yeah. of uh, Heinlein in the first place and uh, turning it on its head. And I think for that usage, having a love interest, having like the classic, you know, space adventure movie trope stuff mm-hmm. thrown in there too is is a, not a bad choice necessarily. I decided to kind of go a different route from the love triangle being a primary focus in the uh, in the storyline for my right. version. Um, I made a few changes that w- were more informed by the original material and then also kind of in that same yeah. Verhoeven way of turning what the intended want of the material was on its head a little bit to match kind of a current conversation yeah that oh that i did the same thing like yeah. i absolutely was uh, i was definitely go, going like story-wise or at least characterization i was definitely leaning more on the book but as far as like intention of the film this this reimagining of it i was very much looking at verhoven's version and why he was making a criticism of the original material and i think that's a very valuable like an, anyone who's going to adapt um this this text is going to have to wrestle with the fact that is so blatantly overtly fascist. Right. And you can't get away from it. If you actually read it, you cannot get away from the overtly military militarization and fascism like rhetoric that's in it. So if you're going to adapt it, you have to address that. Maybe not like blatantly, but you have to talk about it. 
Well, the, I started to think about like the conversations that we have uh, relating to our military and our government and mm-hmm. uh, how this story itself can relate to conversations that we're having. And what I kind of yeah. settled in on was the overwhelming number of uh, low income teenagers or young adults that end up joining the military versus higher income where um, us having a really sturdy military as far as funding and numbers of troops uh, and Mm -hmm. the vast majority being of an income level because they want to move up from their station and sometimes military is the only choice or four years of college guaranteed from service, uh, which that, you know, service guaranteed citizenship kind of thing with education, with being able to get a salary that is well above your expected income uh, from a lot of neighborhoods in the country. And so I figured I would start there as kind of the informing social commentary kind of laying in the back is that Johnny Rico is a rich kid in, in the stories in all of them, I think. Yeah. And his, his family is rich from like, uh, they're, they're, they're merchants and trade goods and stuff like that. At least in the books, uh, they don't really like give an explanation for him in the, in the, movie they just like he comes from a rich background Buenos Aires yeah sure. that's all you need to know and uh so um, I kind of took that and used that as a as a motivation that this is a fish out of water story where it's Johnny Rico kind of being teased for being rich and being out of touch um mm-hmm. by by his friends by Carmen uh by Carl and it not so much being followed a girl here attitude so much as him trying to prove that he's not just some out of touch rich kid that he that he gets it. He's, he's with the common man, you know, he, he understands what's really going on in the world. And so that's his motivation is just to kind of prove that he's not some like weakling, uh, like kid that is only a privileged kid that does, is just going to be able to like succeed and become a citizen because his dad is able to get it for him or kind of thing. So it's pride, pride drives him, uh, which I, I normally prefer that as opposed to like chasing a girl bullshit. Yeah, that was again. That was Verhoeven. Yeah, sort of. He had a. He was trying to take a, what was a fairly antiseptic, uh, story from the book, and he was trying to make it more Hollywood. That's where the love triangle comes from. Sure, and I get that. And also, this was what like nineteen ninety ninety one when this came out. So, yeah. I mean that that's kind of an expected thing at that point. So I I don't really right. discredit him making that choice, but I think nowadays that's not necessary so much. You don't need yeah to have that fourth forefront love story anymore to drive the, uh, the context. The B of the plot. Story. Yeah, exactly. So, um, that's kind of where I'm going with my plot. I'm making where, you know, Johnny Rico's a white kid. Uh, a lot of the people in service are not, you can have conversations about race. You can have conversations about wealth, uh, class okay. struggle separations, uh, in that regard. Um, that Rico, it goes from a place where he's always taken seriously because he's got that privilege to almost never being taken seriously because mm-hmm. of that same privilege and him kind of learning how, what the world really looks like before he's able to excel in his position. So, okay. And then also learning about, you know, that, uh, was it, uh, Gene, uh, Res, Rezac, um, Ratchek, Ratchek, uh, Ironstein's character. Yeah. I also casted white. Because I wanted mm-hmm. to have this kind of like, in Verhoeven's version, a kind of background uh, relationship there. Yeah. Uh, and there being kind of a level of privilege that's kind of suggested that, you know, Rico 
almost initially regrets being given the reins of the Roughnecks because he isn't even sure if he earned it or not. Right. Because he already has recognized how he excelled past other people because of his privilege, because of Mm -hmm. that previous relationship with, uh, with, with, uh, his, you know, commanding officer, his mentor. Yeah. Yeah. So, so him just not being sure whether to even take his own success seriously or not. Yeah. And I want to have that conversation in this. I think that's a good, a good uh, way to the way to take it because, you know, Johnny Rico being turned into a white kid in Verhoeven's version was all about um, making him palatable uh, and making him more Aryan because of the, you know, Nazi overtones that uh, sure. Verhoeven was going for. Um, in the book though, like Rico is not revealed to be anything specific as far as like racial background until the very end of the book. Yeah. Like, the re- revelation that Johnny is a nickname and his actual name is Juanito is saved until the, one of the very last pages sure. of the book. And the, uh, that was an intentional thing on the part of Heinlein because he was trying to address that in this perfect version of his fascist society, that race and gender and background don't matter. It's all about your utility to the state. And that's what's important. <laughs> So it's fascism, but it's not like it's not Nazi fascism. It's like way well, cooler it's, than that. It's, it's still kind of <laughs> uh, kind of Nazi fascism because yeah. the but it's just a lot easier to other somebody when they're an alien, an actual fucking sure. alien. Sure. Because you've got two different alien species that come up in the books. There's the skinnies and there's the arachnids, and both are pretty much like the skinnies and bugs. Those aren't their actual racial names. That's just what the 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 uh, mobile infantry calls them sure and it's it's very blatantly supposed to be you know like the dehumanizing name that we give our enemies sure. in wartime so that we can you know do inhumane things to them well that's i definitely wanted to have the skinnies in this version as well because in you know the yeah. movie they only have this like arid planet with just the bugs on it that they can nuke yeah. and it's fine you know very uh very Ender's Game kind of vibe yeah. to uh, to this a little bit. And I think having this other race that is getting decimated by the mm-hmm. by the Earthlings that are coming yeah. through. And in the books, uh, I've read up a bit before we started, they had like basically exosuits where they could just like run and jump oh, yeah. and, and jump over buildings. And they had mm-hmm. nuke grenades that they were able to throw like extreme distances. And basically it was like scorched earth. They wanted to yeah. just level everything including like whole cities of the skinnies and yep if you're already having the conversation about rico's place in the military where and and it's the conversation of like uh lower income disenfranchised groups uh minorities being kind of sent to die for a country yep. that doesn't even want them uh mm-hmm. because they're all so driven towards the quote-unquote american dream the uh becoming a citizen becoming yeah. uh, uh, you know above their current station um then there's these soldiers that are seeing kind of those elements in the skinnies that are being wrecked by, by them, by, by their own armies. I think it's a great evolution too, because the first species you see are the skinnies and they're described as being allies of the bugs. And that's why that they're being attacked. But the skinnies are relatively humanoid. They look mostly human, Mm -hmm. but they look just different enough to where the mobile infantry has no problem and it goes into very great detail about how they just destroy this uh, and level this city with one uh, troop of uh, 
the mobile infantry, like sure. not even a battalion, just like one squad of mobile infantry destroys this entire city of who are essentially just very different humans. Sure. Like, and then the later chapters, they go into much more detail about how they fight against the bugs, but the bugs aren't anything like they are in the Verhoeven version. Like they're alien because they have eight legs and all, but they're not, you know, close to human spiders. Um, they actually are fully intelligent species mm -hmm. with a hive mind. Like they are, even their basic ground troops are on the same intel intelligence level as humans. And the brain bug is just, you know, kind of like a part of a caste system. It's like a server, <laughs> almost. Like, it doesn't go into great detail about it, sure. but it's explained that there's a caste system in the bug society, but even their ground troops have weapons, have intelligence, have tactics. But because they're completely and utterly inhuman, they don't operate in the same way that the humans do. So, you know, again, we other them and, you know, wipe out as many of them as we can. Sure. But... I think uh, Verhoeven was, you know, making an action movie. Whereas in mine, I would, I want it to be a, a very explicit that the bugs uh, aren't monsters. They're not unthinking, sure. you know, tyrannical beasts that we have to wipe out at all costs. And I want it to be very up uh, at, at one point in the story to be, uh, which is actually revealed in the book as well, that the war started because of human aggression, not because of the bugs. Sure. Like <laughs> they decided to retaliate and, you know, now we're in a war with them. Well, that's a truly, I mean, that's a truly human story, but definitely yeah. an American story that just from our history in this country, you right. can, you can identify that kind of relationship of being a natural, unfortunately natural, you know, human, uh, way of, of expansion or being. I uh, definitely wanted to kind of approach it the same way that I wanted to, for lack of a better term, humanize the, uh, the bugs a bit. Yeah. Uh, the, the skinnies as well. Uh, the, where they, yeah, they're not bad guys. You know, I, yeah. I, I think we're as a, film watchers, you know, film and TV has a, a pro progressed so much at this point that we're able mm -hmm. to have that nuanced approach to good guys versus bad guys. It doesn't have to be this black and white anymore. It can be, understanding maybe not agreeing with but understanding where the bad guy's coming from you know i like when that happens yeah. and uh so I, I definitely want to portray it that way i also really wanted to have that tone of like the uh most disenfranchised groups of a uh of a government mm -hmm. going to fight for that government you know the story of like yeah. the the uh the uh the underclass yeah the the Units of uh, of former slaves that fought for the Confederacy, um, the the Red Tails, the Tuskegee Airmen, you know the uh, the the disenfranchised groups that fought for this country, and that that's a story from all over the world of disenfranchised yeah. groups fighting for a country that doesn't even want them. And I want that to be part of this conversation that like serving guarantees citizenship. That there is kind yeah. of like this filter system. It's like this meat grinder that the, the the disenfranchised go through. And if you end up happening to make it out on the other side, then you can live in um, not even wealth, but just like a normal, you know, held at yeah. a, a, as a, and, a citizen. And it's that kind of parallel that I kind of clung onto for my version. Um, I don't know how well this is going to translate for you, but uh, I kind of want to do like Starship Troopers, the Smedley Butler story. And to give you 
background on this. Smedley Butler is one of the most highly decorated Marines in history. He has two medals of honor, which is bonkers unheard of. Sure. Um, and he was a, uh, he was, you know, uh, came up through the ranks. He, he, he enlisted and, uh, lied about his age and enlisted, mm-hmm. you know, came up through the ranks, became an officer, uh, kind of like Johnny Rico. Like he, he became an officer after being enlisted. Right. You know, and then he got continued to gain rank and he became one of the high, uh, highest ranking, you know, Marines of his time. And then he retired and went back home and he was you know, kind of content to like lead a quiet life and help out veterans and, you know, support veteran causes, especially after World War One, uh, when there was a lot of unrest and a lot of problems for uh, for the guys coming back from the trench warfare. And, you know, according to him, he got approached about about leading and helping a fascist uh, coup takeover in during the um, Roosevelt administration back in 1932, I believe, or 34. Sure. And it sort of awoke him to like the 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 reason why America got involved in like the banana wars and a lot of uh, the the Boxer Rebellion in China. A lot of these wars were kind of exercised for you know industrialists and not necessarily for sure. American causes. And he sort of awoke to that, and the rest of his life was spent pretty much trying to take apart the uh, the, the the complex that would allow industrialists to use military might to advance their financial causes. Oof. So Smedley Butler had his awakening moment where he realized he had been part of this arm of imperialism and he uh, had the chance to become a fascist dictator. And he said, oh, oh, fuck you people. So I kind of want to do that, but with Johnny Rico. Like okay. where He's this privileged kid, same with Smedley Butler. He came from a very privileged family of politicians and like judges and industrialists. And he goes into the military trying to prove himself as being, you know, of tougher metal than his father. And like the whole first act is pretty much Starship Troopers, the book, where it's just fascist propaganda for like the first 20, 30 minutes of the movie. And then, uh, spoiler alert, the end of the book has Johnny you know, going on his last mission, who has emasculated his father to the point that his father enlisted in the, the mobile infantry and joined his unit. And like, it's led to believe that they go on their last uh, mission together and one or both of them don't come back from it. Wow. So in my version, like act one kind of closes off with Johnny watching his dad get destroyed in this fight. And, you know, he comes back to, you know, the ship going like, you know, it was part of war, you know, sacrifices have, have to happen because, you know, he lost Dizzy Flores in the first chapter. And it's like this progression of his character going from, you know, naive enlistee, then, you know, going through like training to become a lieutenant and then gaining rank and then leading his own unit and then losing his father under his command, like the ultimate loss, you know, of family, of your chosen, of your unit. And then he, in act two, kind of starts going where he realizes all of the dead, all of them, Dizzy, his father, everybody was pointless because the war was started because humans wanted more land and he helped them do that. And the bugs are just trying to protect themselves, but he's been part of this like aggression war, like killing his own and others for somebody else's interests. Nice. And then act three becomes Johnny, like trying to tear down the system. Nice. Like that's, that's my version of like how to kind of 
still be true to the book, but sort of reclaim it. Sure. And I think just due to the nature of what the book was uh, written for, you know, it was this, it wasn't a nationalistic kind of ideology behind yeah, the was, writing of it, this book. Like there's, there's points to be made about the fact that, you know, the drill, uh, the, the Lieutenant that he works for, has a Russian name. Mm-hmm. Like there's something to be said for that. Like Heinlein was talking about a unified humanity, which is admirable. It's just the way he described it happening is the, the, the point where it's like, Oh, I don't know about that. No, that is, uh, that has been somewhat true throughout human history. I mean, it, it was something that was used by uh, Alan Moore with the Watchmen of there being a common enemy as being the only thing that tends to draw people together a lot of the time, unfortunately. Yeah, but, but, yeah, but well, I mean, Heinlein's version was, you know, a, was a, was a, um, a revolution from the inside. There wasn't an outside threat that really united sure. humanity. Sure. Um, the bugs came later after they had already taken over. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess an argument could be made that uh, a version where a bug's aggression does lead to the fascist state that, you know, all of humanity is united, and but we're still racist against, you know, everything else. Well, I think the, the, the bugs with my version, at least, and I, it sounds like maybe to yours as well, that mm-hmm. um, there will be, of course, bug battles and, you know, action oh, yeah. and, and there action. has to be some of that. But... Honestly, the bugs aren't even the main threat. The threat is from within. It's the it's the the system that they are inside that is yes. the is the biggest challenge. And the bugs and the skinnies and the enemy is representative of the number of you know like pointless words, like you said, the the military industrial complex that this country has fallen into time and time again. That is that's the that's the real enemy. Uh, the yep. bugs, the skinnies, they're just cannon fodder. They're 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 just there as an excuse for this you know for forward momentum uh with uh with war right and uh so we we should get into our directors and and, uh and actors and such Uh, for mine a director that pretty much anything that he's done i've been a massive fan of and Mm -hmm. talking about kind of uh class um and race and you know Mm -hmm. your 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 place within a society and your responsibilities to the world and your own society from within it um, has been touched in a couple different ways uh, by the different films that this director has done. I had to go with Ryan Coogler for okay. my, for my yeah. director with this one, uh, his conversation in black Panther between Killmonger and Chitala about what your responsibility is to your people and your responsibility to the world I think yeah. there is some nuance there that if just it's it, that's a little bit of the flavoring that you put into Starship Troopers, you can have mm-hmm. a bigger conversation about that. I, I think that's an absolutely great uh, pick. I, I was actually very close to doing the same, uh, but I uh, I went slightly uh, different on that okay. one. Um, I still wanted a director who is comfortable with doing action sequences. Sure. But also has like not even an obvious, like heavy handed social commentary in his films. Sure. Of um, course. Have to with this. Yeah. And, and the same aspect of like doing large and cinematic, uh, action sequences, but he also does really great at showing, you know, war is not glorious when you're actually fighting it. It's messy. It sucks. Uh, people die in very uncomfortable and terrible ways. Not everybody is like glorified in the end. Yeah, war is glorious um, fifty years after it's been fought, when people can, you know, 
people that weren't even in it can talk about how, you know, how cool the people that fought it were. Yeah. You know. uh, so I went with uh, a director who has experience shoot, uh, shooting, you know, gritty war movies uh, with some with some great commentary about like what got people into those wars and why we should probably avoid getting into more of them. Uh, I went with Edward Swick. Okay. Uh, he directed Glory, Last Samurai, yeah. Legends of the Fall. You know, like again, like great shots and sequences for action, but like very, very open and very, you know, obvious about his social commentary. Along yeah, with that, it. that's a really smart choice. One thing I do like about his uh, directing style also is that he allows the negative space of the scene to really have its time. Uh, yeah, nothing really seems rushed. Uh, yeah, and with the way he's got he a very films. Kurosawa kind of feel to him uh, in certain shots, where it's just he lets the scenery exist, mm -hmm. like it's beautiful. Yeah, and especially with something where you're talking about it being like a space epic, uh, mm -hmm. you can have that, you know, shot of the the fields of the dead, uh, but also mm -hmm. you, you know, there's such can be such a glorious uh, tapestry of landscapes in this movie that to be able to have oh, yeah. a moment to kind of like really feel the environment i think is a smart move yeah yeah so hell yeah all right well if you want to kind of go down your casting list for uh for this version here yeah uh so we got to start off with johnny rico okay. and we talked about like you know race representation of the character now i liked your your point about like uh keeping johnny being a white guy in an army of mostly you know colored people and I, I do appreciate that that visual cinematic language to it, but I kind of wanted to go back to the original book with Johnny. And it's a great reveal in the in the text when you find out, oh, he's not a white guy. Sure. Um, but I don't think that necessarily is going to serve as well as like his awakening to the to the political reality of what he exists in. So I'm I'm I went with uh, trying to get an, uh, more of a cast that represented like where they were from in the original text. Sure. So for my Johnny Rico, uh, I went with Ma, uh, uh, Manny uh, Yacinto. Um, you see him in The Good Place. He's uh, um, oh the, the the Buddhist fake monk. I forget the name. Oh yeah, um, yeah. I know exactly who you're talking. He's yeah. he's amazing. Yeah, uh, he's in The Good Place. He's at Bad Times and uh, at the El Royale, and apparently he's going to be in the new Maverick movie. I'm actually looking forward to seeing it now really? because of that. Okay, because I was totally not interested until yeah, he played that uh, Jason in The Good Place. Jason, that's yeah. it. Yeah, he's he's an he's actually a very talented actor, and if you've only seen him at The Good Place, you you can you know kind of chalk him up to being a clown. No, you, but... that's one of those things that like to play that dumb and sell it, you have to be pretty smart to be able to do it. It's like yeah. Steve Martin clapping out of time. You've got to have pretty good yes. rhythm to be able to clap that out of time. Yeah. Uh and not to mention it's also like about like how uh going back to Verhoeven talking uh talking about uh how he's lifted shots from uh Lenny Riefenstahl's um uh, Triumph of the Will all of the Nazis that you see that you get a full face shot of in there are all the pretty Nazis. So all of the pretty fascists have to be front row and center for the, uh, for the, uh, for the mobile infantry in this. And yeah, Manny is fucking just gorgeous. He is a very pretty man. His bone structure is stupid. Oh, it's just <laughs> amazing. He's oh, so hot. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, just moving down my list. Uh, after Johnny Rico, you've got Dizzy Flores, who plays a different kind of role in the book versus the movie. Although, you know, I wouldn't mind having a romance arc with, you know, 
uh, with Johnny and Dizzy in this version too. Oh, sure. You know, fine. True. Go for it. Um, I'm cr- I'm I'm actually upset with myself a little bit for doing this because it's it kind of plays into a trope. But I wanted to have Dizzy Flores played by Ian Alexander, uh, who is in the OA, uh, Star Trek Discovery, and uh, is one of the voice oh. actors for The Last of Us. Okay, yeah, yeah, I know yeah. exactly who you're talking about. Yeah, so I just uh, wrote Dizzy uh, Dizzy Flores, who is the character who very prominently dies in the book as yeah another queer char- uh, queer character. So uh, great. <laughs> yeah i i i did the trope uh i am so sorry but actually i think ian alexander is also a very talented actor and i'd love to see them like really tackle this but yeah sure um well also okay. i think that kind of extends something that's kind of touched on a little bit with verhoven's version about there being like um showers that have both uh, men and women in it that there's there's a complete mm-hmm. co-ed kind of nature to things yeah and if you kind again, of again that was yeah that was in the text with the whole like they're, they don't care about those things in the future. It's not about that. It's about your utility to the state. Sure. So. So if, if you just kind of give it a little light touch like that um, with Dizzy's character, then you're just kind of alluding to that further as well without having to, you know, ma- mallet on the over the head with it. So. Right. Yeah. Um, next, we've got Carbon, uh, Carmen Ibanez, who I want this character to be a little more prominent than she was in the book. Uh, she doesn't. She She's like in like three scenes in the entire book but i kind of want her to come back for act two and three and be part of johnny's sort of like awakening and revolutionary mindset so she becomes more central but again i don't necessarily need the verhoven romance arc to happen with this character um i went with for casting uh shannon uh sassaman she was uh jocelyn in the knight's tale uh she's in the sleepy hollow the tv show oh shannon sassaman yeah yeah, she was in uh, Lo- uh, Rules of Attraction, I think, yep. as well. Yeah, uh, Forty Days and Forty Nights. Oh, uh, that tr- that yes, garbage <laughs> pile of a movie. Um, but yeah, I think she's again, you know, pretty. So that helps with the whole like idea that all of the mobile infantry and like the prominent uh, fascists in this uh, in this version are the pretty ones, because you know that's part of the whole recruitment poster of it. Sure, because the first act is going to be you know fascist propaganda. And then it sort of like falls apart when Johnny starts to realize how gossamer thin the actual through line is. Sure. Uh, moving on down, we get to Ace Levy, who in the books is just uh, Johnny's like XO and his right hand man and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Pretty much fills the same role as Jake Busey did with Ace in the Verhoeven movie. Uh, this is where uh, I go back to, you know, I want the the like original character kind of idea. So this is pretty much one of the only white guys that you're going to see in the mobile infantry in this version. Uh, and it's going to, uh, I want him to be played by Josh Hellman. Uh, he was uh, in Fury Road. He's uh, the, the recast of Colonel Stryker in the X-Men uh, reboot movies. Okay. Uh, very, you know, angular, you know, uh, very militaristic looking dude, sure. especially when he gets the haircut. Uh, I think he would just, excel at that at being you know the right hand man in a mass genocide freaking combat situation sure he looks the part yeah. is what i'm saying <laughs> uh next we've get carl jenkins who is uh johnny's uh best friend growing up and then uh in the books they kill him off you know i don't necessarily need that version and uh, that, that to happen either uh i think i can lean back into the he's one of the psychics with the 
with the Federation. Sure. Uh, you know. Now, if I remember from what I read there, he wasn't psychic in the books. He was a, no. like a tinkerer. He was good with technology and yeah. inventions. And he, got, he got sent to the moon, uh, to the Pluto base, and he got wiped out by the bugs in like one of the first chapters with, you know, off screen. Like he does, sure. his life didn't matter. It was all about motivating Johnny to continue fighting. Um, I think the Carl, uh, but Carl being a psychic, it was actually something they picked up for the TV series, the uh, Roughneck Chronicles. Okay. Um, and they had him as part of the mobile infantry as a psychic. And there is a psychic who works for the mobile infantry in the book, but he's unnamed. So, you know, kind of like blend all three of those characters in together and you get like my version of Carl Jenkins who I want to be played by uh, Renzi Feliz, who's in uh, Runaways. He's one of the, uh, he's the, pretty much the main geek in that one. And he's in Teen Wolf, the TV series. Uh, great actor, good, uh, young kid, uh, but he, he looks like a nerd. And that's kind of what I want Carl to look like. I want him to be the, the, the nerdy hanger on to Johnny's, you know, action hero type. Sure. Um, Moving down, we get Char uh, Charles Zim, you know, Sergeant Zim, played by the immortal Clancy Brown oh, in the Fairhaven so version. Uh, this character is kind of ambiguous, but he still is like one of the central characters because he's the one who captures the brain bug in the end. That is directly from the book. So yeah, Zim taking taking the loss of position as one of the uh, instructors at the uh, at the infantry school to become uh, a regular line. Uh, soldier so that he can, you know, execute the final plan. You know, that's all from the book. So uh, I went with uh, Ken Yamamura to play him. He's uh, He plays the young uh, Yoshida in Wolf the Wolverine. Okay. Uh, he's in one of the newer Godzilla movies. Uh, he's also in the, um, he's in Black Mirror for, for one of the, one of the episodes there. Uh, talented guy. Uh, again, you know, just, pretty which you know kind of the idea yeah absolutely and the last character that i really I like, wanted to i do cast, i do want to point out though that you are really going out on a limb here of people sitting for two hours watching pretty people on screen i know that's a really oh yeah. that's a really yeah, uh I know. iffy choice there <laughs> you're making yeah um <laughs> i mean i just i just know what i would sit through yeah, right? and you know i think it works yeah um I did go back to Verhoeven's version for um, Rat Trek uh, and combined him with uh, uh, Colonel Dubois, the teacher. Okay. But uh, as sort of my, my, my throwback to the movie for casting, I went with Clancy Brown as being. Oh, nice. Character. I like that. I like that so, a lot. Of course, you know, original Star Troopers. He's the Kurgan and the Highlander. He's it. Yeah. Uh, he shows up in the Punisher. Like he's in everything. He's in the Mandalorian. Like, He's in The Mandalorian. He's in Shawshank Redemption. He's, he's in Pet in Cemetery 2. Gargoyles. Gargoyles. The, the cartoon. Yeah. He's just in everything. Yeah. Just, just everything. He's got an unmistakable uh, like look and also voice. His voice is oh, like... Oh, voice. Is so perfect. epic. Yeah. So, All right. So, nice. yeah. There, um, I did kind of like play around with like casting Johnny's dad, but he's, he's really not a major character. That's I didn't, I didn't even cast some of the... Um, a couple of the better names or better characters from the Verhoeven version because they yeah. weren't as important in my version mm -hmm. or they didn't exist in my version. Like, yeah, which is fine. Uh, Dizzy, for example, I did not cast a Dizzy because okay. the version of Dizzy that we saw in the film is not there. It's probably closer to the books where it's just like a 
a side character that dies early on, you know, isn't mm-hmm. isn't really is maybe a motivation, but it isn't uh, uh, isn't as much of an important character to the plot. Their name would not show up on the poster. Sure. So let's let's just go from the the top down here with mine. So this is Ryan Coogler, um, Black Panther, Creed one and two, Fruitvale Station. Great, amazing. Uh, having listened to some audio commentary of uh, of a couple of the movies that he's done, the absolute thoughtfulness of everything in his movies are it's it's a level of uh, of skill and like intent that I I can't even grasp. It's insane. Oh yeah, it's absolutely insane. So absolutely. Um, I got him with, for Johnny Rico, and this is a, a white dude that came from privilege. Uh, his family doesn't really want him to be in the military. Uh, he feels like he needs to kind of prove himself that he's not just this like, you know, upper class elitist prick, you know, that yeah. he's kind of been, uh, shoehorned or, or pigeonholed into, uh, being, and then he ends up kind of realizing through his trials and tribulations that like he realizes his privilege and then he tries to use what privilege that he has for good, mm-hmm. you know, to like kind of make big things better for the people that don't. Um, and that journey I thought would be very interesting to see by Nicholas Holt. If you are yeah. familiar, he plays beast in the, uh, in X-Men first class and mm-hmm. uh, days of future past. He is, uh, was it Nux? Also in Fury Road. Yeah. He's in Fury Road as Nux. And that was really where I got informed from is that somebody that has bought in completely. Yeah. Um, and, and think, thinks of the world a certain way, but then when you're out there and you're in it and you see what the, what the landscape really is, it takes a certain kind of willpower to, in that moment, change your mind because you see yeah. what, what, what the world really is like. So, and also Nicholas Holt can definitely play. Um, there's uh Oh God, what's the name of the, there's a period comedy on Hulu that he plays like a, a, a king or something. And he's just this piece yeah. of shit. And so he can play like the entitled royalty card a little mm-hmm. bit. I want him to be like a kind of pretentious piece of shit at the beginning of this. And then the character arc is him like losing people and getting in the shit yeah. and, and really earning pers- his perspective. And uh, the people that are going to help him earn his perspective, Carmen uh, who is yeah. a love interest, but also doesn't really take him that seriously because he doesn't really have a lot of experience in the world. Yeah. Um, and so just, it's never really considered him for anything other than like, you know, good time and somebody that's like nice and she gets along with, but not actually interested in. Uh, I wanted, uh, worked with him on uh, Creed 1 and 2 and an amazing mm-hmm. actress, uh, Tessa Thompson as Carmen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. beautiful. Also, beautiful n- not just, not just uh gorgeous woman but also like can just deeply talented deeply talented and like emanates independence you know that that's mm-hmm. why she works so well as valkyrie in uh yeah in the marvel universe because she just has this like oh no i got it don't you worry i i got this covered and you need that for carmen carmen in, yeah. in mine is definitely going to be kind of career focused but not in the like she didn't buy into the propaganda thing so much is that she has a lot of skills She's and naturally think, talented. Yeah. And I think the, the important thing for the love interest, uh, especially if you're going with book Carmen, is that she doesn't need the validation of a love interest to like make her world whole. Exactly. Also that. And, yeah. and Tessa Thompson has done that in, in a, quite a few movies of hers where like love interest is a thing. It's a presence inside the film, but it doesn't validate her existence at all. Exactly. Yep. 
which I think is very important to get Carmen as a character to to come through. And Carmen was such just a foil in the Verhoeven version, which again, this is early 90s. I get it, but it's just, it's not necessary now. You can tell a better story not using a character that way. Tessa, I think, will be doing a great job that uh, as being a naturally talented, uh, intelligent uh, woman that joins the service uh, because that's, you know, a way of actually being able to use those skills. There's not a lot of other opportunity. And uh, so it doesn't really buy into the propaganda, isn't part of the the uh, the propaganda machine so much. It's just that that's one of the few options that she has available to her uh, right. to, to do what she wants to do. Then we've got Ace, who, like you said, is kind of like the, the sidekick, you know, the uh, the right hand man uh, to uh, to Rico. And I thought it'd be very interesting, especially both with size and uh, and temperament attitude. If you've mm-hmm. got like a gentle giant type character to play uh, Ace, uh, just a, a big dude that has just like almost a kind of a, a chill. Uh, I got this instead of goofy, like uh, like Jake Busey played it, have it more just mm-hmm. like affected less by, than other people by the shit that's hitting the fan. Right. Um, I thought Winston Duke would be a very, oh, yeah. very fun Ace for that role. Fantastic. Um, and also yeah. just a giant man. So him next yeah. to Nicholas Holt, who's not, Short, like he's a, he's no. a tall dude, but he's scrawny, lanky. So to see uh, thick with two thieves, Winston uh, sees two Winston Duke next to Nicholas Holt, there will be mm-hmm. definitely some pretty strong cron- contrast. And then also yeah. you can use that as like a, you know, you used to think of yourself as having all this power, and now you're in a position where you're the same level as the rest of us. And that kind mm-hmm. of like playful intimidation that Winston Duke puts forward as uh as uh oh it's in Black Panther um uh. Um, um, Mbaku. Yeah. Of that playful intimidation, I really think would be a lot of fun in that, in that kind of uh, role. Absolutely. Then we've got uh, Carl, who is yeah. kind of best friend to Johnny, um, is mm-hmm. really motivated, uh, similar to Carmen, only it's not, it's not propaganda driven either, but it is definitely in a, kind of an angrier approach to it that he, he knows what it is. He he has a clearer mm-hmm. view of what the military is, what he's doing, what you know, what his service is being used for. But he has this attitude of like it's either me or them, like a you know, a killer be killed kind of attitude. And it's like I'm gonna yeah. get mine. You know, I'm gonna get to where I need to go to to accomplish what I what my goals are. And if right. people gotta die, people gotta die. So the the skinnies, the 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 bugs, like anybody that are that are found to be under his boot so be it you know just like has this his motivation uh supersedes his humanity is okay is, is how yeah. i want to play carl and of course as the arc happens that that becomes more and more prevalent as the story goes that's not right that's not constant throughout he's a little bit more human at the beginning of the story and through it's his service the character evolves yeah it's almost like there's a character arc or something yeah and weird. i think especially with this actor just outside of his talent as an actor, him having kind of that same attitude about being an actor, that this is the dude Mm -hmm. that shows up. This is a dude that puts the time and the energy in, is absolutely 100% motivated to be the A number one actor and puts everything into it. Um, I've seen a bunch of interviews of him talking about that. Um, And also uh, very much uh, in Ryan Coogler films, Michael B. Jordan, as Carl. Oh, wow. Yeah. As the one not to be fucked with. Like, yeah. you do not get in his way. I think he would do that very well. I Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
he he carries that very well in pretty much every everything I've seen him in, especially the more um, action oriented uh, pieces. I think though the one that uh, is probably more analogous to all this is it, it's it's not a great movie, but Fahrenheit four fifty one. Yeah, not the best. Uh, I, no. That's a hard adaptation anyway, so it is kind it of is. a high bar. It really is. But I think he he delivered a very good performance about a guy who is going through like that idea of, I need to do this because it's the it's what needs to be done to you know preserve us and me and my position and all this. And then like he sort of starts wakening up to it later. Um, and that's how I kind of want to play his character in this as well as the waking up to it later where, you know, uh, Johnny kind of realizes along the way the dangers of what they're doing as because yeah. he comes from an outside perspective where he's not in it the whole time. He starts to realize the the plight of the soldiers that he's fighting alongside with. And then so mm-hmm. he has a direct correlation to what's happening with the people that they're fighting. Um, he sees it from a totally different perspective. And so by simply having that perspective, it allows people that um, that may not have seen it before to get what's happening. Um, and so he's not really leading people towards uh, a revolt necessarily, but it's, it's kind of like a, a crack in the wall kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And the, one of the most resistant is going to be Carl. He's, he's a, yeah. he's a company man, you know, he's a, he's career. And here, here's my question is Carl still the, uh, like I grew up around you friend that he is in the original. Uh, I wanted to kind of put it that that's how Johnny knows Carmen is that Mm -hmm. uh, through uh, somewhere in their childhood, uh, Johnny and Carl got to know each other. Okay. And then over the years, you know, they ended up going to like college and stuff together. Mm -hmm. Um, because you know, they kind of grew up around each other, not from the same neighborhoods. It was just kind of a happenstance of being friends. Uh, yeah. But there was always kind of a little bit of a rift between them based on kind of their, their avenues in their life, you know, that, yeah. that re- Johnny was definitely better off than, uh, than Carl ever was. I think, yeah, I think that will play in very well for the, uh, the third act when they ultimately have to have the confrontation. Yep. It says like, dude, you need to step back. <laughs> and then also that like, y- you've always thought yourself better than me. Why? Like even now we're in the service and like, I'm higher ranking than you and you still think you're better than me. And yeah. just that like boy who cried wolf kind of attitude towards Rico, uh, even though like it's for real this time, like this is bad. Yeah. Like you need to stop. But just having grown up with him, always thinking that he knew better because he was privileged because he came from a higher class. Um, that when there is something that actually makes sense, uh, he's unwilling to hear it. Right. And I think that'd make a really interesting dynamic. Uh, then we've got Sergeant Zim. Mm -hmm. Um, and I love this woman to death. I'm doing a gender swap on this one. Um, I, I didn't, we cast a lot of women on here besides, uh, Carmen. I thought it'd be kind of interesting to have like the, uh, the direct below, uh, Ratzek as, uh, as a, just like, loud brash don't you fuck with me uh female like officer mm-hmm. and uh worked with Kugler on black panther has been in everything ever uh angela bassett yeah as zim as a like and i'm thinking about like the throwing the knife scene uh <laughs> I, I just like angela bassett is just like casually able to fuck people up like i like that 
I like that a lot. And then you have the kind of that attitude of like, you know, she's not a big woman, but mm-hmm. still is able to just school the fuck out of people hand to hand, can throw knives like that. There's this attitude of like, I had to learn how to be better than everybody else because of where my station was as a woman. Yeah. And so you can have like that an underlying conversation there with that as well. And then I like uh, that. Ratzik, I, again, wanted somebody that could do the military role, could definitely have a previous, uh, like, relationship with uh, Rico, whether it be the teacher route or a friend of his father, I thought would be more of a a better move. You do, like, the... Yeah, that could, yeah. The the wealthy and the military both kind of, like, going to the same parties kind of vibe. Right. Uh, I thought it'd be interesting to see what Carl Urban would do with that role. (sighs) Oh. Be a beast, it, it, absolute beast, and it'd be fun to see kind of that you're rooting for him, kind of, but you're also mm-hmm. realizing that he is kind of a piece of shit too. Yeah, and Ur- Urban's, oh, absolutely. Urban's done that. So, oh I, yeah, I, uh, I, I mean, he, he's he's done the 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 fascist hero before. He played Judge Dredd, Judge Dredd, and also he was in uh, Chronicles of Riddick as well yeah. uh as, as part of uh, the uh yeah, yeah i know i don't like to bring that up too much <laughs> no no it's a good it's a good fucking turn for him i just don't think they really utilized them as well as they could have no, i true. think i think dread used him better i think uh but as much as i like to harp on the new star trek uh reboot movies i think he did the best bones that you could ever have hoped to get Agreed. besides getting deforest kelly back from the dead i yep. mean like Agreed. he doesn't have the stature of the man, but like God, he nails the attitude right. perfectly. So, like, I think Carl Urban is deeply talented actor, and I love to see him in anything I can. And you know, the fact that he can just like turn on that I'm an asshole, but you, and you agree with me because I'm right, but at the same time, I'm kind of a dick about it. So you kind of hate me. Like he he plays that very well. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that that would be a really fun choice for that character. Um, yeah. we, we're running a little bit long, so I, I think okay. just kind of knocking out the fun take. Oh, yeah. Um, Mine's, mine doesn't take a lot of explanation. I, that's, <laughs> mine doesn't either. It's The fun yeah. take is never something you really got to get as deep into because like right. your motivations are entirely for your own enjoyment anyway. So yeah. it's not it's not actually important. But, right. So uh, for your... Your fun take, your remix, as it's so. Were. So for my remix, um, I think uh, I don't know how well aware everyone else is, but The Incredibles is pretty much Ayn Rand for kids. So I want to make Starship Troopers fascism for kids and make it a cartoon, and like Jesus. fun little actiony, you know, cartoon freaking uh, movie. And to get the the just absolutely nail on the head feel for it i'm gonna get brad bird brad bird incredibles iron giant ratatouille uh all of these movies have like this sort of like underlying political like criticism going on sure that you don't quite see but like if if you like deconstruct it and through that lens you you you, it becomes pretty obvious yep so for brad bird's uh starship troopers (laughs) you know fascism for kids okay um we get johnny rico uh, played by Dante Brasca, uh, Basco, who was in Hook. Uh, he's the vo- uh, he's uh, one of the uh, very talented voice actors in Avatar: The Last Airbender, and in one of my personal favorite movies. But I'm a cheerleader, where nice. they pr- send him to pray away gay camp. Um, anyway, uh, for Dizzy Flores, uh, 
Gail Garcia uh, Burnell, who is another deeply talented voice actor. He was in Coco. Uh, he's got a great turn in live action in Mozart in the Jungle. He's he's just incredible to watch. Uh, very soothing voice. So nice. uh, I like that. Um, Carmen Ibanez, uh, Olivia Thrillby. Uh, I already brought this up. Dread. Uh, she's also in Juno and the rebooted uh, The L Word. How is uh, I've I've not heard anything one way or the other about the new L word either. I I think it's more geared towards the generation after us. I don't think it hits quite the same notes as the original L word did for I'm a lot of starting us to, like millennial or starting Gen to X notice that queers. with a lot of television actually. Uh that yeah. it's definitely not written for my uh my yeah, generation. I, it's it's different. Um I'm not gonna call it good or bad. I just I don't think I'm the target audience for fair it. Fair enough. That's fair enough. Yeah. Uh Going down my list, Ace Levy. Uh, I went. I wanted somebody who could be like confident and goofy. Uh, so I went with Bradley Cooper. Oh yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Hangover, Limitless, A yeah. Team. He's got a great. Uh, got like he is very. His voice comes across his attitude very well. Like you could have me completely blind, and I could tell what what he's emoting just by voice alone, which sure. is very important for you know animated film. Uh, this is my throwback casting for Carl Jenkins. I went with Ryder Strong, who voices Carl Jenkins in the Roughneck cartoon. Oh, Jesus Christ. Okay. Yeah. Uh, if, if nobody recognizes is that the name. Boy meets, he's... Boy meets World? Boy Meets World. Wow. <laughs> I'm I'm both impressed that you pulled that, and I'm also impressed that I knew who Ryder Strong was. So, yeah. 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 Good call. Good call. <laughs> um, for uh, Sergeant Zim in this one, I I wanted somebody who could have a very aggressive voice, somebody but who's also very bombastic. So I went with Dave Bautista. Okay, solid. You know, WWE, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy, the new Blade Runner, like great voice, amazing voice, and I don't like. I think he really turns on the comedy charm in the in, in the Marvel movies. I think I'd like to see a lot more of that in a like lighthearted version sure. of. Boot, the boot camp sequence. And I know uh, that Bradley <laughs> Cooper and uh, Dave aren't going to be too mad to be working together again. With, oh, hell no. They're yeah. going to be gr- just just absolutely all for it. Uh, and again, combining uh, Dubois and Ratchek, uh, I went. I wanted somebody who was like warm and fatherly. So when he, he gets lost, like not necessarily killed because, you know, kids movie, we don't see him chopped in half like we do with Michael Ironside. <laughs> right. Uh, in this version, I want him played by Jimmy Smith's. Uh, he was in the West Wing. He's uh, Bail Organa in Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, he got his real big break in NYPD Blue. Uh, beautiful, just again, beautiful voice. Um, so, yep, there we go. There's, nice. my, okay. there's my fascism for kids movie. Uh, you know what? And I was just complaining the other day that we're not teaching kids fascism early enough. You know, yeah. if we could just really get in there sooner. Uh, that'd be <laughs> that'd be better. So. Uh, you're you're doing uh you're doing your country's work right there you know yeah, teaching you're, kids you're fa- welcome. fascism's the right way. <laughs> um, I also went with something a little bit more uh, child appropriate kind of um mm-hmm. in my approach to this. I decided that what if you got a studio that decided to make this movie and looked at kind of the the base level of it and didn't think about any of the political stuff that went with it whatsoever. And just yeah. casted somebody that could have a lot of fun with, with all the creatures, with the different landscapes, and um, and didn't really consider that this is this is not about you know fun <laughs> creatures. This is about yeah, something yeah. else. Um, and I I kind of figured it'd be interesting to see what Tim Burton would do with uh, Starship Troopers. <laughs> I I that's 
oh my god Wait, you <laughs> play like you play it kind of like uh <laughs> using so, a lot of the, a lot of the lens choices and uh lighting that was in uh miss peregrine and big eyes uh, for on earth you know when when it, you know like fuzz uh, fuzz filters and everything's kind of like bright and clean and and normal and almost like 1950s and then you go into the stratosphere and into space and it's like going down the rabbit hole in Alice in Wonderland that everything is like hyper saturated color and whimsical and weird and creepy oh my god i just i just can't <laughs> just the tonal dissonance of tim burton trying to do you know gritty action fascism yep just wow but you do instead of like the whole starship trooper story you do basically kind of part of it where they're stuck on this planet um without any kind of way out and mm -hmm. they kind of learn that the bugs aren't the monsters that they're made out to be and you do kind of like the fantastical take on them kind of ended up making friends with like a little dog-sized bug that like follows oh, them yeah, around and you just like pull out whatever fucking trope it doesn't matter because the studio doesn't care as long as yeah. there's like big spiral like coloring on the back of the bug's butt and like and glows in the dark and maybe a musical number fuck it who cares right. um, yeah sure do it if you're gonna do this version balls to the wall right? and that's exactly what i'm going with the casting as well i'm not giving a oh fuck at God. this one uh, so this is gonna um, be a train wreck it's gonna be a yep total train wreck so for johnny rico um, now for age appropriate, you couldn't do Johnny Depp. You wanted somebody a little bit younger right. than that. So, uh, but don't you worry. Uh, mm. so for Johnny Rico, I actually went with, uh, Asa Butterfield who was in Miss Peregrine's, uh, home for imaginary kids uh -huh. and was Ender in Ender's game as well. So I was he's already fucked. He's a tad young, isn't he? He's a little bit young, but that's kind of how I want to play it. Where his fish out of water okay. is that he's just a little bit smaller than the other guys, you know? Right. That. Okay. Of, yeah. Cause the regular story kind of takes Johnny through a few years. So you're just kind of keeping with his fresh recruit. Yep. Kind of level. early days. And, uh, and he is, he's in his like early to mid twenties now. Uh, the, the really? actor. Yeah. Jeez. Time flies. Oh my God. Then we've got, uh, Carmen, the love interest. And I also went with a, uh, a alumni from Tim Burton and went with, mm -hmm. uh, Mia Wasikawa, Kowska. Uh, she played Alice in Alice in Wonderland. Okay. So yeah, she, yeah. she's a little bit older, and in this version, they don't—they aren't like schoolmates where they went to school together. It's more like friend of his friend Carl. Okay. Like, so it's kind of met, met through acquaintance. So there is a—it's uh, not that much of a difference in age. I think it's only like four or five years between the actors' yeah. ages, but it's—it's it's enough that they don't play fuzzy with the ages anyway. That's how uh, casting works. Yeah, usually. So uh, just a fresh-faced, uh, friendly, you know, happy character. Yeah that uh, gets in over her head and then somehow just kind of magically ends up making things work out well, kind of um, that whimsical Tim Burton-esque kind of vibe of, yeah. you know, you have no business doing the thing you're doing because you're underqualified for it, but somehow you kind of pull it out at the end and it works uh, kind of attitude with this character. Right. Then uh, Ace, uh, I went with, I saw recently, uh, yesterday, the Danny Boyle film, and I absolutely loved mm. it. And the main actor, uh, Himesh Patel, was yeah. amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think he had the right tone for Ace where he's uh, got a little bit of a kind of a dumpy attitude about things. Like he's the guy that got picked on a lot, but he's still mm -hmm. like actually a pretty decent dude. He's just right. a little bit awkward 
and he's a little bit too aggro about stuff like ah just too into it because he you know maybe didn't have a lot of friends growing up or there's something but he yeah. is overall like a decent dude and i think uh himesh would do that relatively well he had a little bit yeah. of that he was more of like the dumpy attitude in yesterday but i think he could totally kind of turn that to just being like kind of a hyper aggressively friendly <laughs> to people <laughs> yes and and Definitely. go that route with it then we've got carl the uh, the best friend growing up, so I wanted mm-hmm. to play a younger actor there as well, and yeah. an actor that is killing it right now is doing mm-hmm. so well that is about five years away from some major scandal that's going to blow him out of Hollywood or and for ten or fifteen years, <laughs> and he'll develop wow. a drug habit and end up doing like really low budget indie films and then have a, a comeback in his like early forties and be able to Rob, kind of like. Rob. Robert Downey Jr. Style, gonna, I think he's probably going to Robert Downey Jr. I just have a vibe from him. Uh, Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> okay. That's that's a dismal uh, prediction. He's but, already uh, you know. had Army Hammer try to eat him on screen uh, in yeah. Call Me By Your Name. So yeah. um, him <laughs> oh, and, and his jism in that movie, uh, actually. Yeah, so. yep, yep, yep. Thanks. <laughs> yep. Didn't need it. No problem. So Timothy Chalamet is Carl. So dude that's just like, He's charismatic. He seems to have all the shit together. Uh, everybody else is trying to figure stuff out, and he always seems like he kind of was one step ahead of everybody. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's kind of how he's going to play it. Then Sergeant, right. Sergeant Zim, uh, grizzled old soldier that is just never really right. gave up the fight. Michael fucking Keaton, I think, would have a lot of fun in that role. That'd be fun to watch, actually. And yeah. he, he would go pretty big with the character, and I think that works for Zim's character. I think it'd be a lot of fun. And then, of course... Uh, uh, Ratzak, you've got to, yeah. in charge of the whole shebang, uh, you got to mm-hmm. throw Johnny Depp in there. There you go. Yep. There's I the knew Johnny you were going to get him. Of course. He's he's yeah. the the uh, the mentor, the the one that yeah. kind of guides them along their way. So Of course. So, yeah, that's my uh, my Tim Burton's Starship Troopers. Oh, Lord. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. So when he's done filming Beetlejuice 2, he can jump right on board with... Uh, yeah. Sure, that and that when he does uh, Superman Reborn, too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, fuck it. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> Nothing matters anymore. So we've got two quick um, mashups before we get into our trailers here. Okay. Um, the first one from our good friend Michelle. Of course. Uh, Michelle Left Eye, as she's known on GUI. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just think she threatened to burn my house down once, so we just start calling yeah, yeah. her Left Eye. Um, that works. We've got, this is a weird choice. Year one. What? <laughs> I know, I know. Do they do they get blasted back to the Stone Age by the bugs at the end? Is that the one thing I was thinking? Is that if you just did where like maybe the the Federation, the the army, isn't from mm-hmm. Earth, but is from some other human planet, like the humans, and then Earth is still happening, and it's just like galaxy far, far away kind oh, of vibe. Wait, wait. Actually, there is a thing for this. Um, there's a planet in the books that doesn't have any of the natural radiation that Earth gets from its sun. And the reason why they don't want to settle there is because humanity won't evolve the way it does on every other planet because there's no radiation exposure. So there's no impetus to evolve on this planet. Oh, so you get human colony dumped on the planet million years later. The Federation is still going strong. They've conquered the bugs and, you know, humanity has regressed into the stone age on this one fucking planet and everyone's a dumbass. That's amazing. That's perfect. I, I <laughs> there's, you did it. I did not see that <laughs> happening. That was a challenging choice, 
But oh, yeah, God. Th- then you have kind of like in their whole biblical, you know, voyage of time thing they're doing in year one. There's yeah. also, you know, a bug war and spaceships. Yeah. <laughs> because fuck it. Why not? And that there's that's the, just the one weird cult of humanity is, uh, believes in the bug war and the spaceships and shit. And everyone's like, you guys are nuts. Nobody <laughs> believes this. What is wrong with you? That is totally outlandish and weird. And why is that bug coming over here? Right. That is a big bug. <laughs> that's at the end. There's the whole trope of them, like a spaceship going across the sky. And when somebody looks at it, it's already gone. Mm-hmm. Them trying to prove, no, there's there's people in the sky. They have these, you know magical wheelbarrows that they move through the sky in or some shit. They wear suits and they throw nukes. <laughs> exactly. So, wow. Okay, year one. Uh, the one, right. other one is a little bit more approachable. I uh, gotta uh-huh. uh, thank um, Morgana for a- asking this uh, mashup here. Firefly. That makes sense, actually. That's that very works. doable. Um, because, you know, the idea that humanity is this one completely united uh, empire and federation is, you know, like clean and easy if you're only telling the story from a soldier's point of view. Sure. But it makes plenty of sense that there's going to be elements of humanity that did not fall in line with the whole, you know, fascist regime. And there's going to be, you know, that renegade ship that's always trying to dodge the fucking war. And the, the... you think that there's one thing that everybody's going to get behind on this planet, we couldn't get behind the earth being round. So yeah, like, if we can't get behind that, then we're pretty hopeless on everybody agreeing on something, anything, literally it, anything. Well, I think the idea that, you know, humanity gets into its own little civil war and has to put down a rebellion makes total sense with a fascist regime. Sure. Like, I, I totally see that there's like this, these colonies of Earth that, you know, slightly stretched out of their freaking means to keep uh, the, the propaganda and the suppression up. And then eventually a few of them band together and like, we're going to secede from the Federation. It's like, nope. <laughs> also, if you're talking about during a time of war, if there are people that are detractors from the mentality of this major government, when they're distracted by a major war against another enemy besides you, that is mm-hmm. the time that those people motivate. <laughs> when, yeah. when the, when the uh, vast armies of this you know fascist government are distracted by a giant bug aliens. Yeah. So, I think it would absolutely work. I think it could work as like the next natural storytelling uh, moment for Firefly after the movie. You could have them, you know, within a period of 10 years or something, discover aliens. And, you know, the, the, uh, the Alliance is the Federation and uh, Mm -hmm. they kind of tighten their stranglehold even more after the things on Serenity. Yeah. uh, And then fight the bugs. And then you can have that just natural progress. You've got psychics in both. I mean, it's right. uh, even to the point where if I remember correctly, there was uh, for the Serenity movie, there was the scene at the end where all the troops came in with their guns. uh, And there were two things, one of which is that some of them were holding cameras and uh, like they were guns uh, just to get coverage Mm -hmm. in the shot. And additionally, a lot of those helmets were actually Starship Trooper helmets. Yeah, they, they used were in the movie. So uh, the the rifles and the helmets have been reused and reused and reused by studios. So like you could make an argument for pretty much any of the times that they show up. That yeah, it's a Starship uh, uh, Trooper sequel. Yep, it's a sequel or whatnot. Exactly. So that that yeah. fits pretty well. All right, let's get into our last little bit before we uh, right. say au revoir to this episode. Here we've got our trailers. I think I'm gonna do a whimsical Tim Burton uh, joint on my trailer. 
Uh, I think I'm going to do uh, fascism for kids. Okay, really. cool. So we're going with the remixes on ours. So yeah. let me get the music queued up. From the twisted mind that brought you Edward Scissorhands, Beetlejuice, and Ed Wood comes a new Im- imaginative take on the, the Heinlein classic Super Troopers. Join Johnny, Rico, Carmen, Ace, and Carl as they traverse the universe looking for adventure and insight into their their own... their... their who they are as people. They fight against bugs and... The, the complications of friendship and unite together to bring joy to the to the Federation I'm losing steam Federation and uh, along the way they make friends of all shapes and sizes this Halloween don't space out Go on an adventure of a lifetime with Tim Burton's Starship Troopers, starring Ainsley Butterfield, Mia, you know what, just everybody that's in all of the Tim Burton movies, that's who it's starring. Coming to a home theater near you, straight to DVD. I lost steam really quick on whatever I was trying to do there. That You uh, called it Super Troopers. I did call it Super Troopers. Okay, you know what? Fuck it. I don't even care. Fuck it. Why not? And now I'm kind of interested to see Shit. what a Tim Burton Super Troopers would look like. No, now oh. I'm interested in a Starship Troopers meets Super Troopers. <laughs> That's the mashup we should have done right there. Oh, my God. Like that would have been amazing. Screwball comedy in the middle of a genocide. <laughs> <laughs> They're just like uh, galaxy police that are just uh, making sure no ships are speeding while going through. Just like, okay take life is beautiful but make it even more grotesque oh god wow yes yes <laughs> wow oh no yes all right well that's the worst mashup right there there your, it is your punishment for coming up with that idea is to uh <laughs> to now do your uh fascism for kids fascism yeah, let's for let's kids continue with the train yeah this uh this fucking Oh, if this doesn't get us canceled, I don't know what will. Oh, man, let's work. (laughs) Let's do this. All right. You ready? No, but let's do it anyway. All right. Here we go. In a world where every man is a hero, (laughs) where the strong are needed to defend the way of life of all humanity, a war will begin out there in space against inhuman monsters. Spiders, bugs, and the strong will stand to defend us, all of us. (laughs) This summer, Bradford brings you the incredible story of Starship Troopers, starring Dante Bosco, Gail Garcia Bernal and Olivia Trilby with Bradley Cooper, Ryder Strong, Dave Bautista, and featuring Jimmy Smith. Do you want to know more? There it is. Yep. Yep. 
definitely better than mine, though I set that oh, bar yeah. as uh, as Amy puts it in hell. So, um, so oh, well no, done. like I, I just started like pulling from uh, uh, Umberto Eco's uh, like er fascism for the through lines about like what propaganda works for fascism. Well, I will tell you that the name of this episode is definitely fascism for kids. So I, I can't be not fantastic. That. Yeah. So. Let's uh, see how many angry letters we get from parents. Um, <laughs> and our response is, why are your kids listening to this show? Jesus. Yeah, um, seriously. So, yeah, thank you, Jack, for joining me on this journey into the uh, into the universe that is uh, Starship Troopers, not Super Troopers. Yes. yes. <laughs> and uh, if you like the show, definitely rate, review, subscribe. Uh, anywhere you get your podcasts, uh, when you review us, when you rate us, it sh- makes us show up a little bit in the standings, lets other people... Uh, notice us as they're looking through podcasts. So we do appreciate it um, if you do so. Make sure to check out the other shows on the Geeks on the Influence Network at guipodcast.com. Um, we've got, uh, I don't know how many shows at this point. I, I think that it changes daily at this point. Yeah. <laughs> we have so. Exponential growth of shows on the network. Absolutely. And we've got all our links to our social media on, uh, on the website as well. So uh, join our social media. Uh, we send out messages asking for mashups, asking for ideas for future episodes. Uh, so it's it's a great way to interact with us and uh, and maybe even get a suggestion for a future episode uh, done. So if you have a movie or a TV show that you really want us to uh, play with, then and that is horribly the be- scar, horribly ruin terribly. Yeah. Then uh, that is the best way to get in touch with us. So um, join us next week for a shortlist episode, the mini that we do every other week, and uh, we'll find you next time. I'm Mike the Hobbit, and you just got pitch spats. GUIPodcast.com My name is Amy Bogard. And I'm Mike the Hobbit. And we are the hosts of Deeply Upsetting, where we use our expertise to answer your most upsetting hypothetical quandaries, such as what non-wigged animal deserves wings? And what body part deserves a secret mouth? Which cryptid is the worst roommate? These questions and more that plague you will be answered on Deeply Upsetting, available anywhere you get your podcasts and at GUIPodcast.com. Coming straight from the mouths of madness, I'm Lowdown. I'm F.U. Hunter. Do you love horror? We fucking do. So this is a podcast dedicated to all things in cinematic horror. We're talking movies, television, composers, special effects artists. We're going to fucking cover it. So if you love horror, embrace the madness. Hey guys, Scotty Big Daddy Preston here. That's right, the Geek Father asking you to join me here every other week with friends and family of the GUI Network as we go through all the trials and tribulations of being a geeky parent. So remember, join us or cry.